welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. So good day, everyone. This is Steve King. I'm the Managing Director at Cyber Theory. Today's podcast uh, is going to feature Tito Sestito, uh, the co-founder and CEO of Hidden Layer, a uh, cybersecurity startup that is in the business of preventing adversarial machine learning attacks. And he is uh, joined by uh, John Kinderbog, whom you all know is the father of Zero Trust and a friend to the firm uh, that uh, Tito has started here called, again, Hidden Layer. We welcome John's uh, background in Zero Trust as, as that's part of this discussion today, as you'll see in a, in a minute or two. Tito has over a decade of experience leading uh, global threat research, intelligence, uh, engineering, and data science teams. Uh, his focus has been on security products at companies like Silence and Qualys and Agari, and he's uh, delivered cybersecurity and data science training for Fortune 500 companies and government agencies. So with that, I'd like to welcome you, Tito, to the show, and, and John as well. Thanks for Thanks for taking the time, guys. Steve, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Sure. So let's jump right in. If I'm not mistaken, hidden layer refers to neural networks and those layers that are located between the input and the output sides of the of the algorithms. And in fact, my impression is that when we talk about AI, we're really talking about artificial neural networks here, aren't we? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And that's, uh, that was the inspiration for our name. And I think that's exactly what we do. We, we want to protect those, those um, neural networks. We want to protect artificial intelligence and machine learning of all kinds. I think uh, when we look at artificial intelligence and machine learning that have been deployed in production systems today, there are many uh, different flavors in which they come in and, and uh, um, all of which very vulnerable and, and uh, certainly a focus for us. But yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly how we named ourselves is, uh, is based off of the hidden layer there. And it's a little bit of a play on words. We we want to be a hidden layer in your defensive stack as well, and where we can uh, defend those those assets for you without necessarily uh, in, impacting anything in terms of your uh, uh, production line. Yeah, sure. Why now, though? I mean, why why is this stuff suddenly becoming important? It's you know, it feels to me like uh, we've been talking about this for a long time, and yet nobody has kind of come forth. But is that because the bad guys are using more of it, or because it? It leads to automation of manual labor tasks, uh, or you know, that don't require a lot of predictive analytics. Why now to the market? It's a, it's a very important question, and it's one that I can answer in a, in a couple different ways, Steve. I think uh, we actually started developing this technology back in 2019, and we knew it was a bit early for the market at the time, at least in terms of the sort of willingness to embrace the need for a solution like this. To answer your question about the uh, the bad guys, they're absolutely taking advantage of this. I think. Uh, the most important way I can answer why now is that uh, if you think a little bit back to parallels in traditional cybersecurity, uh, we really started seeing attacks take off when we saw automated attack tools like Metasploit become available. And we are absolutely at that point now in adversarial machine learning. There's over 26 attack tools just available on GitHub today. So what that creates is a scenario where you don't need to be a data scientist. You don't need to be an exploit developer. You just need motivation to conduct these types of attacks against machine learning. And you can go perform tools, or I'm sorry, go uh, download tools to do that for you. Um, we're also just seeing, in general, I would describe this as, I, I've never seen a technology get this far in terms of adoption 
without really considering security and and uh, and you know different defenses that that are required when you think about all of the different artificial intelligence that's being deployed at the edge in web applications, mobile applications, hardware, software products, open source solutions. I mean, it's it, the there's a, a, the deployment is everywhere. The uh, adoption is everywhere, and um, there really isn't any specific security measures being taken, uh, and that's that's sort of the void that we want to fill. Um, and uh, you know, the time is is uh, is right. The time is probably uh, even earlier would have been okay, but the you know this is absolutely a real risk for organizations today. So I can go out and buy an exploit kit for a hundred bucks or something on the dark web, and uh, I don't have to know anything about this stuff, and I can run it and uh, attack General Motors. That's exactly right. I mean, when you think about all of the different uh, machine learning models that are deployed uh, at the edge, and what I mean by at the edge is is there the, the power that's unlocked by these models is allowing the public to interact with them, allowing your customers to interact with them. But what that does is expose that same path to allowing uh, malicious actors to interact with them. So there are, you know, uh, sort of that uh, adversarial machine learning as a service is certainly available. Uh, on the dark web. And then there's also, you don't even have to go hunting for it and, and pay for it if you'd like. You can go on all the different, you know, uh, academically driven attack and red teaming tools that are available on GitHub today. Um, some of them developed by some major players. There's Counterfeit developed by Microsoft. There's Adversarial Robustness Toolbox developed by IBM, all of which can be used for legitimate red teaming exercises or to conduct attacks. So um, those are those are freely available to the public and as, as open source tools. So this is very, very much a... Uh, the bar of entry for conducting these types of attacks is pretty low. And that's that same catalyst we've seen kind of in the early 2000s for uh, just an, an enormous uh, step up in terms of the frequency of these types of attacks in traditional cybersecurity. And we're, we're seeing that parallel in adversarial machine learning. <laughs> you know, I mean, nobody's that I'm aware of has ever uh, characterized this space as the joke fest that you've just <laughs> described. But when you think about it, right, I mean, if I can go to a grocery store and I can you know, and I could just grab some stuff from produce that happened to have been created by the NSA or whom so or Microsoft or whomsoever. And then I can turn then I can use that as an exploit kit to go after General Motors. And I don't have to know anything about anything in order to do that. That to me sounds like a comic book circus. It's like, <laughs> how can that even be real? How who created this and how did we get here? It's crazy to think about it that way, but it's a it's a it's an established pattern. You know, it really is. It's a, it's a sort of the uh, the idea behind all of the different uh, technological sharing that we need to do on the kind of the red team blue team uh, relationship, and uh, and in using these sort of well known attack tools. When you think about things like uh, you know legitimate organizations that build things like Cobalt Strike that get used by the bad guys, and uh, I mean it's a, this is it's, it's certainly a pattern that we we've seen and we need to embrace when it comes to protecting new technologies. No, that's crazy. It's just crazy. We could talk for hours about that too. But who is your ideal customer profile? I mean, what 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 does that company look like, and what, what's your market differentiator? Are there a bunch of people in the space? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I can answer kind of both of those. Which is that um, there there are some other organizations in this space. It's certainly a recognized problem. I would say before us, there were more uh, sort of academic style responses to this problem, which involves. Things like uh, helping you build your machine learning models to be more robust or complex, uh, which essentially creates a, a, some sort of hardening to them. Uh, we didn't take that approach for a few reasons. Um, we actually protect it just like any other cybersecurity product. We, uh, we've actually evolved things like endpoint detection and response or managed detection and response or XDR into what we call machine learning detection and response. 
And that allows us to protect these machine learning models without having to make them bigger, without having to make them more expensive, without having to to get inside them and gain access to them. So it's a, it's a, it's a much less invasive approach. We don't need access to any sort of raw data or to, to even the algorithms themselves to be able to protect them. All, all lessons that we've learned in the EDR space. Uh, so uh, there, there are some organizations in that space. They're a little bit more services driven, and again, a little bit more academic. But to, to, to answer your original question around who is kind of the ideal organization, I think mature data science teams are well aware of those vulnerabilities. They are, uh, I mean, uh, I think you know, data science has been uh, publishing adversarial white papers uh, in, in sort of the abusability of the machine learning space since 2013. So when I approach an organization with a mature data science team and, and talk to them about the real threat that that exists for their organization, they're, they're not really surprised. Now, the security side of the house has not had that level of exposure. So ideal customers for us at the moment are those with, with more mature data science teams that have got uh, sort of an understanding, at least in one area of their organization, of what's going on here and what can happen. But to be honest, it's a, it's a universal problem. It's a problem for every industry. It's a problem for every organization of every size. I think um, we see a, a 93% of, of United States businesses either home grow and use machine learning internally or use it through a third-party vendor. So that's really every sort of stage of the enterprise, small and medium business, even mom and pop shops are using machine learning. So we need to, we need to solve this problem more globally. I would say to be even more specific about the perfect sort of scenario for early stage users of this product, you know, we, we see a lot of adversarial activity and things like fraud. Um, so if you look at organizations trying to avoid fraud detection and evade classification models that are looking for that malicious behavior. We, we actively see quite a bit of that today. Um, but it's certainly, you know, every company is a big data company and that that provides a lot of opportunity for adversarial threat in the machine learning space. So so I think, you know, really, it, there, there's not that many organizations out there that don't need a solution like this. Yeah, so, sure. so if I'm so, a CISO, I just want to clarify what your go-to-market is around um, around sort of company size, I guess, you know, does it, I, I know you're not saying this, but if a company has, you know, is a, has a large volume of data, is that a way to determine, to kind of parse through and find the right prospects is, you know, sort of like how big is your data lake or do you, or do you really care? I mean, I think if we, if we're speaking more tactically around some sort of organizations we need to work with, it's really organizations that are, that are applying machine learning uh, to that data. And so, uh, size of the data isn't quite as important as, as sort of how they're engaged in, in um, you know, the application of machine learning towards their problem space, especially those who are deploying it in their products, uh, in their data pipelines. Those are the ones who are most exposed. So there's many examples of that. There's, you know, as I mentioned, fraud, there's algorithmic trading. There's a lot of that in financial services. There's a good yeah. amount of that happening in healthcare, insurance. So I would say those with mature data science teams who are applying these machine learning models into production systems, that's our market. Yeah, I got it. Okay. As we've said, John Kinderbug here is, uh, goes back to, with you guys like 20 years or so. You work with him because I'm assuming your product fits somewhere within the Zero Trust framework. If that's true, can you kind of elaborate on what that looks like a little bit or have maybe, John, you can do that? Yeah, sure. I'll do it. I mean, because uh, some of the people there I've known for a long time, they're ex- silence folks and when we started talking the question was to me do i think this fits into zero trust and and it was pretty clear to me that that it did because a you know if we look at the five-step model that you and i've talked about a lot steve the first step is define your protect surface what do i need to protect well i need to protect 
my machine learning artificial intelligence algorithm. I need to protect the database that it runs on. I need to protect a whole lot of things that are happening. So now, okay, that fits very well in there. And then the second step, uh, understand the transaction flows. How does the system work together as a system? Yeah, I absolutely need to know that if I'm going to protect the machine learning system because I, how would I protect it if I don't know how it works? That's always baffled me throughout my whole career. And Gabe, the who's over there at uh, Hidden Layer, he and I, we started out as young pups in cyber together, going through lots of training courses and stuff. We both live in Dallas. And, you know, at that time, you you weren't looking at things very holistically. It was very tactical. We would, you know, we'd take a training. I'd see him in a training course for some scanning product or some firewall or some ids product and you were very tactical about the products but you weren't thinking about the system and so now that we can start doing system thinking we can start thinking about it differently and then that by understanding it as a system that'll tell us how to protect it and quite frankly this is the only technology that i've seen not that it maybe isn't the only technology in the world, but of the things that I've seen that are actually focused on this specifically, there's other organizations or that that would say that they have some ability to do this within some other product, but to focus on this specifically is unique. So they have architectural controls for step three. Step four is policy, and absolutely they can define the policy of who should be allowed to have access to the, the machine learning algorithm or the data set or whatever it is. And then finally, the fifth step is monitor and maintain. And, you know, Silence was good at that, understanding what uh, was coming in and, and, and getting some visibility and then helping you understand what you needed to do to fix that. So it absolutely fits into Zero Trust as a five-step model, and it expands our understanding of the things that we need to protect. Because I would say that most CISOs are going, protect my machine learning algorithm? Uh, Isn't that something done by application security team? Isn't that just built into the app? I mean, I I think we're all at a a very early understanding of that, unless you're a data scientist. And that's the struggle when you're trying to secure something. You know, Tito said, well, I, I don't think I've seen anything that's this mature that's we've waited this long to secure. And I would argue that that's pretty much the way it always works. It gets a lot of maturity before anybody thinks about the security. Uh, the network is the great example, you know, ARPANET and DARPANET and the internet yeah. and all that stuff were around for years and years and years before anybody even considered adding the first itty bitty bit of security. So I'm glad we're getting ahead of this now before it becomes a big deal. And the question that that I would have to Tito is if I'm a, skeptical CISO or director of security who's got to get the budget because the data team wants it, but it has to come out of the security team's budget because it says security in it. And I would go, gee, I haven't heard of any of these attacks. Are there documented things that that people can look at and say, I can read this article, I can read this report or this case study and see that it's a real problem? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, first of all, very well said, John. And I I just want to throw out that it's so important to view this particular problem space uh, from a CISO lens and and to really apply it to, you know, the very important framework that you've created, because it really does make this a little more tangible and and part of a CISO's workflow. And it's it's very important to think of it in those terms. So I think that that, uh, 
this comparison and this um, and this thought path is is uh, is highly important in that, in that space. But yeah, there's there's absolutely documented areas that the uh, AI incident database is sort of a an enormous wake up call for those who visit it the first time and they start to see how many artificial intelligence incidents there are. Some of which are you know exposed uh, ML assets, some of which are malicious attacks from external attackers. Some of them are insider threats. And when you start to see some of the organizations that are up there where we see you know, how many incidents and how many affected organizations from those incidents, uh, we see that this is not a problem for tomorrow. This is a problem for today. Now, regulation is, is uh, significantly behind in terms of requiring those to publicly divulge these types of breaches and threats <laughs> from machine learning assets. So uh, you're, you're not seeing any of these organizations volunteer to expose this type of data, but I would say that's a great spot to start is the AI incident database. You'll also see use cases like MITRE has formed their Atlas framework, which is uh, a lot like those of you who are familiar with MITRE ATT&CK. Uh, they familiar, they've built a brand new framework called Atlas, which is dedicated to adversarial machine learning. And we work very closely with them to help them grow and, and, and adopt that framework to uh, the types of attacks that we're seeing. But they also have use cases uh, where they say both uh, you know, real world attacks as well as like uh, red teaming exercises and some other sort of areas that can really wake a CISO up to kind of what's going on. And, and you know, I would just add from, from my uh, experience so far in this space that that you know it's it's very real. I think uh, I like to say in, in security we've gotten very used to ransomware, which uh, really calls its attention to us immediately. Nobody doesn't know they've been hit with a ransomware attack. But if you think not too far long ago when we were looking at things like rootkits and, and backdoors and hidden shells and those types of attacks that you really had to go looking for, that that's a lot more of the of the mindset we need to have with these types of attacks because if you're not looking for them. An inference attack or uh, an evasion attack or data poisoning can happen right under your nose. So I, I would say that there's a lot of, of information out there. You just have to a little bit be a little proactive and understand it while we wait for regulation to catch up. But uh, it's certainly just around the corner. In fact, October was an enormous month for that. We saw the AI Bill of Rights come out of the White House. Bank of England called for a framework around this type of uh, security because they've they've seen how exposed we are in the financial sector. So um, I think we're we're going to start seeing some more of this regulation play catch up, but. In the meantime, it's going to be up to those CISOs to be a little proactive and understanding around, um, you know, how exposed their organization is and uh, and uh, you know what steps need to be taken. And I think viewing that through that zero trust framework that that John has really shifted the way in which we look at at the uh, adversarial landscape since its inception. I think we need to we need to take that lens and look at this problem because this is not a new pattern; it's just a new technology. When you describe your product to prospects, do you emphasize the the zero trust framework as part of your solution or is that or do you talk about that as a oh by the way it also you know fits within a zt framework or something we absolutely lead with it i mean i think that uh, you, you know cso's okay. cso's understand that as, as the framework that they need to use but we tell you if you know you're, you can't be zero trust if you're not protecting your ml assets and you know machine learning is certainly part of that supply chain and if you're not looking at it as a, an element that you're securing, then, then you're not zero trust. Yeah, yeah. So how do you know that CISOs are thinking about AI and ML adoption today? Wouldn't you agree that modern CISOs have kind of zero bandwidth for new systems or tools or software, and they don't trust anybody's marketing messages anyway? And so if you agree with that, how do you plan to go to market? How, do you, how are you going to get a CISO to pay attention to you? Yeah, great question, Steve, and one that I've thought quite heavily about over the last year, which is there is certainly a bandwidth issue among CISOs today, and, there, and there's no discounting that. But 
you know, I, I personally believe 12 months from now, hearing a CISO say they don't protect their ML assets is going to sound as crazy as hearing a CISO say they don't protect their network today. It's absolutely a problem that they're going to, going to be responsible for that they really already are responsible for. And, and we can be an ally in helping move forward there. But I, I would also say to, to any of those CISOs, think about the patterns you've seen over the last decade. I mean, there's been any new technology comes alongside new specific the, the protection mechanisms that go alongside it. So, I mean, if you think not too long ago, if you think towards like, you know, even our migration to cloud, um, you know, we had a very similar sort of scenario where we, we did require new technologies that are now very openly embraced. Um, so when you think about sort of every new attack vector comes alongside of a new sort of need on the security side. And, and most CISOs have gone through that, you know, 20 times in their career. So there's really not much different in terms of a pattern. It's just a, a technology that uh, they may not be as familiar with today. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I mean, cloud's a lot easier to kind of wrap your brain around than sure. AI or ML. And, you know, I my I have a thesis that <laughs> much of the trouble that we're in is because CISOs fundamentally don't understand a lot about what a lot of the technology that they embrace and, and are in the process of implementing and get into complexity trouble because of that. You know, so it's fairly easy to describe cloud, not so easy to describe AI and ML in terms of use cases. So that leads me, I guess, to are there some use cases that you can describe right now that are driven by AI or ML that we can talk about so that our audience can say, oh, I get it kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if I'm putting a CISO cap on, I'm thinking about all of the different vendors that I'm currently working with and how they're using machine learning. So like even in threat detection, like we did at Silence and um, with all of the different sort of uh, next generation technologies that exist in, in cybersecurity today, very good example of, of AI at the edge where these machine learning models are able to be interacted with through those products to scan an asset, an artifact, whatever it happens to be, whether it's a file or whether it's um, some sort of network set of data or something along those lines or EDR behaviors. Um, all of those are using machine learning and, and attackers want to bypass that machine learning detection. So they're actively interested in performing these types of, of inference attacks and adversarial ML attacks on those uh, pieces of software to be able to build universal bypasses against them. And that's exactly what we experienced at Silence in 2019. So as a CISO, I would think a lot about your third-party risk. I would think about all of the different tools that you're using to secure your environment and how many of them are reliant on machine learning as, as a, a tool to, to protect you. And if those machine learning models themselves are not protected, then that's, that's risk that's transferred directly to you. So I think that that's you know, one example. Again, there, there's fraud. I think that there's significant examples of, of machine learning being used in sort of prevention of adversarial activity that are really only one step removed from, from malicious attacks being successful. So I think that that's uh, probably the closest example of what CISOs are interacting with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. And, and fraud detection is a good example. What is it that, you know, I can do today in that domain that I couldn't do before AI and ML? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, fraud is, is uh, for, for, for many reasons, um, is, is really in all of its forms, whether it's account takeovers, whether it's, you know, some sort of like financial transaction fraud, like credit card fraud or, or you know, banking fraud. Um, machine learning is a very effective tool in identifying fraudulent transactions because of just the wide breadth of data that's available there. And, uh, and and also, it's something you can do on the back end that doesn't interrupt the user experience. Like you're not using a, you know, you can't necessarily put out a two-factor, you know, text message every time somebody wants to swipe their card. So um, machine learning is something that can be used uh, to identify these types of behaviors, you know, without interrupting that user experience. So it's also something that attackers are very interested in understanding. So 
if I'm uh, an attacker and I want to go steal some credit cards on the dark web and start understanding how you know Bank X uses machine learning to uh, to detect you know fraudulent transactions, then uh, as an attacker, I want to understand where it's making its weakest decisions and where I can find you know expose different factors that I have control over, like the frequency of those transactions, the amount of those transactions, maybe what geos those transactions are coming from, and learn how to manipulate that model to go completely undetected and commit as much fraud as I'd like without that classification, and that's. That's sort of an inference attack that leads into an ML evasion attack, um, and one that's very real and actively happening today. So, yeah, to just one example, but uh, I think uh, really it always is is very very similar format in terms of the, the adversary attempting to understand how these machine learning models are uh, making their decisions, so that we can uh, we can either poison them or we can avoid them altogether for for something like uh, um, avoiding a classification uh, from an, uh, from a fraud model. So. Certainly, something that, that I think uh, CISOs can can very uh, easily interpret based on a lot of the uh, technology they've worked with in the past. It's just just a newer way of detecting the same type of threats. Yeah, yeah, sure, that makes sense. I'm conscious of the time, so I think my final question today will be um, around ML ops, which you know is a set of practices that is the way to deploy and maintain machine learning models into production uh, kind of the right way. In a perfect world, how would Zero Trust impact an MLOps architecture or you know delivery system? So yeah, I can I can kind of start by by saying MLOps is a is a fantastic step forward in the uh, applied machine learning space simply because of all the steps that we know to take with every other technology. We need to version our data sets, we need to version our models, we need to be able to roll back technology. If we find problems, we need to be able to track some explicability across our, our data pipelines. So it really quantifies a lot uh, and allows us to understand some root cause analysis when something goes wrong or, or how to make our products even better and how to make our models even better. So it helps every step of, of now what we call the MLOps pipeline in terms of not only just making those, those pipelines better, but then also uh, aligning it with something like zero trust and, and understanding kind of which, at which steps of the five steps that John mentioned earlier, um, where along that MLS pipeline can we not only you know test and, and make sure that we're compliant, but then also I think that step five of kind of that continuous monitoring is really, really well aligned with, with zero trust. But I'll, I'll pass it on to the expert there and, and see what you think, John. Yeah, I mean, all these things are things that people have to be aware of because attackers don't sit still. They're They're always innovating. So just because we don't have any idea that how to do something doesn't mean they don't. And I think your, your example of, you know, as a former QSA trying to secure uh, credit card environments, your example of learning, how does the system work? What, what are the triggers? I mean, it's the same thing you would do in physical security. Where, where is the alarm system? How do I find how to get into the compound where the fence isn't electrified or whatever the thing is. And so, you know, th- these things are adversarial and cybersecurity is an adversarial business, just like the military and law enforcement. So always we're going to, we're going to find really smart people doing really creative things. And then we're going to have to try to stop that creativity because from our perspective, it's malicious from their perspective it's how they make their money. Sometimes I just look at at how good the attackers are, and I just want to applaud, just like, wow, that was an amazing thing that you just did. And I think this is kind of one of those spaces where, you know, these are not 
the the criminals from 20 years ago the cyber criminals from 20 years ago the script kiddies and all that even if they can download stuff off off of the dark web they they have to know what to do with the data and they have to understand data at some different level in order to to create value from the attacks because they need to get a value from that so it, you know i guess they could do it sometimes just to be malicious but there's always going to be some outcome that they want what is the goal of the attacker is the goal to just bring down the machine learning system so they can get in real quick is the goal to learn how it works so they can figure out how to do an end run around it what is that goal and then by understanding that you know you use technology to solve this you can't solve a, a problem like this through training your people right security awareness training for machine learning <laughs> if anybody ever comes out with that that's that's going to be the silliest thing of all time no th- <laughs> this is what computers are made for right yeah they're, they're made to crunch the, these numbers this is all math it's applied mathematics use a computer to do this and figure out that this is an important thing that you have and then protect it right people want to damage destroy steal your machine learning models. And one thing that we haven't even talked about is research and development. If I can steal your algorithm, wow, that's a whole lot of machine learning R&D that I didn't have to do, right? So uh, if I know that you're doing it in a cool way, hey, I want to get in there and steal that so that I can do it even better, but I I don't have to catch up. Yeah, yeah the Chinese problem. Chinese have the lowest cost R and D on the whole planet. Uh, amazingly, <laughs> yeah. hey, hey John, uh, not everybody knows what a QSA is. So, for the benefit of our audience, oh, you it's, tell it's, us about it's, what that means when you say a former QSA. QSA is uh, are, are the people who assess credit card security uh, systems, right? So, there's a payment card industry data security standard. They validate these people called QSAs, a qualified security assessor. I think it stands for. Well, it's been so long that I'm trying to pull that out of my brain. But you learn how to protect cardholder databases is essentially how you you do that. And, and which is a cool thing because you learn how to protect a single binary data string, which is the PAN, the personal account number, because that's the thing people need to get in order to do credit card fraud. So they're trying to always steal that information. And it's very valuable. Even today, people say, it's not very valuable. Well, an individual credit card isn't very valuable, but 5 million of them are, 10 million, 100 million of them are, right? And we've seen those size of breaches. So these adversaries can make a lot of money by stealing this kind of stuff and selling it on the dark web. Yeah, for sure. And before I run off here and log into GitHub to find myself some red team tools, um, <laughs> I wanted to thank you, Tito, for for spending a half an hour or so with us today, and and you, John, as well. I know both of you guys are super busy. I'd love to talk to you, Tito, offline about perhaps putting together an introduction to AI and ML and today's use cases for our education initiative that uh, I'm trying to put together here. And John has developed some introductory coursework around uh, Zero Trust as well. But uh, I'll call you on that later. And perhaps, you know, if we 
can revisit here maybe you know mid January mid February see how see how things are going from a market shift point of view we're all aware of the you know headwinds that we're now up against as a result of of the last few weeks worth of uh, you know <laughs> reporting and God willing the recession won't you know it, it won't have the kind of impact on this market as it will on the other on all the other markets so I wish you the best. Sounds like a cool company, and I'm looking forward to seeing you guys in the news. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you, John. I really appreciate the conversation today, opportunity, and then I would love to to, to look into anything on terms of the uh, the educational side. That's something that we believe a lot in here at Hidden Layer is how to spread that word, how to educate those on uh, applied AI and, and cybersecurity implications of it. So, yeah, looking forward to, to chatting about that and catching up in the future. Yeah, that's great. All right, I appreciate that. And- Thank you to our audience as well for spending some time here. And I hope that this was useful to you all. And until next time, I'm Steve King, your host, signing off. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.